0: Welcome back, my friends, to The Sweet Spot, where IT leaders bring insights to other IT leaders and others that want to be leaders. I am your host, Carlos Vargas, and as always, I have here my two co-hosts, Howard Holton and Paul Lewis. Hey, guys. Hey there. So uh, another week. What has happened this week? Ooh. Well, I just got
1: back from my Tahitian vacation. Uh, it's quite fruitful. Spent a good portion of my time on the beach. Uh, you know, going to my cabana, had my own swimming pools. Good. I highly recommend it.
2: I don't know if you're serious. Did you seriously go to Tahiti?
1: I did none of those things. I've been stuck in my house uh, for the last eight weeks.
2: I haven't been stuck in my house. I had to do something that I, I determined uh, a while ago was really stupid. Um the California State University system, and specifically my daughter's university, Monterey Bay, um, I'm just going to say is garbage. Uh, so when this whole thing started, one week before uh, spring break, they, they closed at, uh, the school down. They just didn't close housing. Like you could stay, but they recommend that everybody leave if you can. And so we're out of state students. So we brought my daughter home like you do during a pandemic. Um, Then they immediately said, well then it was about two, two and a half weeks and they said, okay, well, we're offering refunds if you don't plan on returning to campus. So we immediately said, well, we don't plan on returning to campus because we're out of state students and we're not sending her back to campus to sit in a room by herself during a pandemic, especially when all the food is closed. Right. Right? Like there's no way for her to get a meal. And they said, um, okay, cool, you have to clean out the room. And I went, why? It's a pandemic. We're not allowed to travel. (laughs) Nobody else is there. Like, there's nobody else there. No, you have to clean up the room. If your stuff's in the room, we won't refund you. Okay, fine. Then I guess we're not getting a refund because I can't travel during a pandemic. That sounds silly. Right. So then we got notified that by May 16th, everything had to be emptied from the room. I see. Regardless. Regardless. Hmm. So they forced us to travel during a pandemic. Now, I looked into having someone else do it. Um, and if there's a little bit of usury going on because it was $4,000 to have somebody else clear out the room and put it in storage, not including the monthly storage fees. Wow. Yeah. And it's like an eight by 12 room. Right. But this is not the Taj Mahal.
1: It was one truck full's worth of content. One.
2: Right. Yeah. So what I had to do this week, because it kind of came to me last minute, you know, the notification that the 16th was the due date, yeah. was I had to get in the car and drive about 4,000 miles total. to drive to go pick up all of her stuff so I've got 44 hours of wheel time or no it's more than that 30 30 hours of wheel time this week
1: did you stay in uh, Marriott's along the way
2: of course of course I I have to say now's (laughs) a good time to use points (laughs) it's It's true research, and uh, I think it's like you could get a week in Hawaii for 120,000 points right now good deal Yeah, and with Southwest doing Hawaii, I've I've got enough points for like three weeks of hotels and 25 round-trip tickets or some retarded thing.
1: And a side note, it's also the time to buy points. So uh, Aeroplan this week was 110% of Aeroplan points. That's 0.8 cents per point, which is dramatic. Um, And then Marriott starts next week, uh, which is give or take 1.8 cents per point. Which and these are massive savings. Like if you want to ramp up, this is the time to ramp up.
2: Right, but they don't count towards um, spend, right? They're just points that you can then redeem later for something. Correct. Yes.
1: Actually, Aeroplan. No, they have something called travel at home, so you can actually accumulate AQMs in as much as you're
0: buying points. No
2: need.
0: Yep. So that's (laughs) that's an interesting conversation that take us to where we're looking to go today because you got information from those different companies through marketing that is that they're communicating their vision and how they think that they can help you like in this time you can get more points and different things so how about marketing for the cios
2: Marketing uh, for CIOs. I hope the math is better than the Marriott. If a hotel room costs you twenty thousand points, which just seems to be a, 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 a an average for like a, a Courtyard, then it is three hundred sixty dollars at one point eight cents per point. Uh,
1: no, sorry, point one eight. Ah, so thirty six
2: dollars yeah. then. Great. Yes, thirty six dollars. So that would be a very good deal.
1: Yeah, it's worth ramping up if you have some extra cash. That's kind of. I actually Great. bought up Aeroplan points. Uh, knowing that I have a you know European vacation to do next year um, and if I were to buy the tickets it would be uh, six times more so sure. even even if I were just to buy it was worth it in cash alone
2: and the aeroplan points are are like some sort of United point or are they specific to Air Canada or
1: it's it's Air Canada points but they're part of the Star Alliance and therefore you can also get United and Lufthansa and Singapore and
2: Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, I do like Star Alliance. I mean, if we yeah. if we were to take a minute and talk about that before we hop into our main topic of the day. <laughs> um, like, uh, it's interesting to see kind of the corporate response to um, travelers and the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my companion fare under Southwest was renewed until uh, December 31st of 2021, mm-hmm. knowing, right, because they know you're not going to travel and they have to balance the whole... I'm loyal because I have status, therefore I'm loyal to get more status kind of thing, versus they're making no money and thus, how do we cut costs, right? United kind of did the same thing. They renewed all of our, whatever status you had, they renewed until 2021. Yep. What have have you seen and, and what have you seen as positive and negative? So
1: Airplan actually did one step further, which I thought was amazing. So not only did they extend your current status for another full year, right? So I'm super late, which is the top level. I get to go another full year. But whatever status you earn this year, so let's say we get back to uh, semi-normal or at least partially normal in June, semi-normal in the fall and perfectly normal in December. Uh, whatever status you earn, you can give to anyone.
2: Oh, that's cool. Yeah yeah so
1: you're and you probably aren't gonna do it to your family because they generally travel with you so they get right. the, they get to extend the same value but it is now something you can give which is amazing right and then of course married also extended theirs uh, for another year right. uh, regardless of status which I thought has been amazing I think that's been pretty consistent hotel to hotel um, and airline to airline uh, assuming that airline survives the only problem is if the airline uh, doesn't survive then you've potentially lost your points and lost your status and you don't know what to do. Sure,
2: so I kind of balance that. I try to do two uh, status on two different airlines all the time. So like I'm um, premier on United, 1, 1K, sorry, on United, and then I'm also um, whatever the top is on Southwest, including companion okay. pass. Because okay. theoretically on Southwest, you can get companion pass without, any, without A-list preferred, which is their kind of top status. Right. And not that it's a big deal, it allows you to board the plane slightly earlier, Um, which may actually change. Um, But it also gives you free Wi-Fi on the plane, which is quite nice. And hopefully no one from Southwest ever sees this, but they're really, really bad about coordinating the free Wi-Fi with the fact that you're actually flying and have a ticket. (laughs) So if my family flies even without me, they may or may not get my login to get free (laughs) Wi-Fi. But Um, I
1: have seen them... Um, loading the plane from the back forward, right. uh, uh, meaning that so two ways: either you're going in a front door, but you're going from 33 to one, or right. they're loading from the back door um, <laughs> to ensure that the first people still get the first rows. So,
2: right, it's it's, it's well, going in, to in, fluctuate. In in which case, like one of the biggest advantages to boarding the plane early, and really the only one that I care about, is being able to to store my luggage right right um being a frequent traveler checking bags is a nightmare it adds an hour each way Mm -hmm. right it means i have to get there earlier to the airport which i'm i'm almost never running late but every now and again i'll have you know like a meeting that pushes or something um but then you have to wait for the bag to come off the carousel which is a often a crapshoot and depending on the airport it can take a very long time um so you know that's a delay that i really don't like to deal with plus as well, you know, right? We really focus on up to thirty days in a carry-on, right? Right. So we're not forced into check bags. Now, you fly in India, that may be different, right? <laughs> right? They don't, <laughs> but, you know. You, you do a commuter flight, for instance, they may check all the bags, but um, but that's a that's a a bit of a problem. And I would say, even if you get upgraded to business or first, um, oftentimes I'll see people that aren't in those classes throw their bags up top when the space there, right. So, you know, as a frequent traveler, I think that's a, I think that's a difficulty that I'm not sure I'm, I'm happy about giving up.
1: I think one thing they could do to help with that is not only like they do with the small planes where you can check your bag at the gate and then they bring it back to the gate. Right. They should be able to do that with big planes too, right? To say if you choose to gate check, then they'll bring it back to the gate when you land.
0: And that right. way space is irrelevant. Right. And I would be okay with that is that should be then a benefit for specific classes because then that could add a lot of time and then all of a sudden everyone wants to do a gate check.
1: Yeah, I'd certainly minimize the amount of people who could do it or made it a paid advantage that might also be valuable, like a a revenue to earn there too.
2: Or a a status tag, right? Sometimes, and sometimes they'll do that. Like United, if you have status and they know you have status, they'll often put a priority tag on your gate check bag. Right. and you pull those off first, right. um, which kind of, you know, solves the problem um, and maybe give people an option, right? You can gate check your bag with a gate return, in which case you're stuck waiting for it for however long that takes, or you can gate check and we'll just throw it on the baggage, on the baggage carousel for you to pick up.
1: I'd kind of like a combo. I'd like to check in my bag, but have it come back to me at the gate when I land. And that way I don't have it with me right. in the airport. Right,
2: right. I think that that would be a little bit more hard, a little bit more difficult logistically, but, it, but right. a colored tag would probably solve the problem with reasonable accuracy. Right. It wouldn't be perfect, but with reasonable accuracy.
0: Well, thinking, thinking about that, like, I know that American has a priority tag that they put when you check in, doesn't matter where. And I know that some of the other airlines have the same thing. That might be a good idea that you can check it when you get into the airport. You don't have to worry about it. But because you have that different color tag, when they get it out, oh, just go up instead of going into a conveyor belt. Sure.
2: If we're talking wishes, I'd really, I'd really like to see a lot more value from the airlines app, right? I'd like to see you have a flight today. We'd like to start tracking your location. Mm-hmm. You know, at a certain status level, we'll we'll enable some sort of concierge service. If you have a bag to check, click the checkbox. Like we'll have the tag printed for you. You kind of arrive, they grab your bag, they send you to the, the place that makes logical sense at that airport for security, right? Make sure you know how to get to, your, get to your, your proper gate, you know, kind of some of those logical things, maybe even answer a question or two, where's the Starbucks? Because I know some people like Paul really want to know where the Starbucks is. <laughs>
0: American has something like that for the super, ooper, duper, uh, they even have a little car that they pick you up on the gate and they drop you on the next gate.
2: That's, that's for their um, concierge key Yeah, order.
0: but nobody knows how to get there.
2: So, um, so, so all of the big airlines have that, right? United, Delta, uh, and American. And there's two ways to get there. The first is um, you're part of the negotiation team for your company, and, they, and, and it's a large company, and you, you basically you um, make an arrangement to guarantee a certain percentage of travel with that airline, and they'll give you a certain number of those keys, of that status. Okay. So um, our CEO uh, has that for American and that's how he gets it. So he doesn't have to worry about how much he flies and he flies plenty to get it, but he also he gets it because of that. Then the second way to do it is based on um, spend. It isn't, there is no guaranteed number. There is some algorithm that they use, but for United it's at right about 65000 in spend annual, which is a lot it is a lot not doing an international and you're not paying full freight for business plans international you're probably never going to get that right um and they just kind of surprise you with it it's an unlisted for all of them it's it's an unlisted um service level and it doesn't seem to bring that much and the car service is just if your flight's late or you have a tight connection they will literally put you in a mercedes and drive you to the next gate and walk you up the stairs and hold the plane and and that sort of thing. But it does ensure, like for global services, what it's called on United, um, you do have top priority for upgrades. And if there's ever an unsold seed in your global services, you're kind of guaranteed it. It's rare to have more than three or four global services on any domestic flight. Right. So, And then you, you know that even within the top published here, there's rankings in that, right? Yeah, There's always a number one. There's always a number one, and that's based <laughs> on um, volume and velocity right right how much do you spend and how how much do you fly, determines your ranking in that um, priority list of of within the the tiers that you set.
1: all right let's get to our topic
2: (laughs) (laughs) so paul you brought up a really interesting one that i think we should talk about as well as part of this what was that topic we kind of started to chat about it a little bit and then held off
1: Sure. So I've uh, had the privilege of spending this week, especially, but the last couple of weeks in uh, CIO roundtables, specifically on the topic that is near and dear to all of our hurts, which is leading it in a pandemic or practical it in a pandemic or what happens sort of post pandemic. Um, and they've been incredibly fruitful conversations like, like, Dramatic sharing of complex issues like cybersecurity um, and sort of celebrating success. One of the bigger successes was sort of agility in IT, and and there's always a constant joke in these uh, roundtables of you know it used to take six months and a million dollars to get anything done in IT. That was just a truism; it just happened to be true, and yet now they're they're performing miracles in two to three week periods of time, right? proving that, in fact, it was always possible to do IT change in a much shorter period of time. It means your risk tolerance has changed. It also means the amount of people involved in the decision has changed and that that the business was able to make far quicker decisions than they have been in the past. So all of those have created an opportunity to do things like tripling your VDI experience in a week doubling up on your service desk team um, in days, right? They, now they're able to do that, or even shifting what their, their digital transformation. But one of the conversations, given your question, that prompted sort of the most um, spirited type uh, was culture, specifically about video conferencing culture. Um, as you can see, we all have different backgrounds, and we're all wearing different things, right? Uh, it's quite possible I'm wearing my PJ pants. Um, but one of the, one of the sort of the, the cultural aspects is should we have sort of rules of engagement? Is there an expectation that home is like the office? Uh, Should the hours be the same or be different? Do we expect you to work more or less? And a lot of the conversation was about flexibility. Because you're working at home, you should have a ton of flexibility. If you need to go manage and feed the dog or take him for a walk or play with the kids, fully within your power to do that as long as you still get to do what you need to do. The one comment that I thought was the most effective and actually put pause on all of the CIOs, and I repeat it in several, is one comment from one of the financial services CIO, shockingly, was this. Our culture for video conferencing is, since uh, you were inviting us into your house, you get to set the rules. Not unlike if you're inviting us to a backyard barbecue, it's your rules. And if your rules are kids can come in and out and you're petting the dog, you're wearing whatever you want to wear, you have the music on, that's okay. Because
2: it's your house and your rules. I thought, that was, I thought that was brilliant. So does that then mean you also have the responsibility to set those rules in some sort of agenda? That was kind of my thought when you mm. said that. Like, I really liked that idea you're inviting us into your home because it shows the respect to that invitation right right and and i'm i'm real big on on that kind of respect but but at the same time does it not also then set the expectation that whatever those rules are you'll make a pass at right like it doesn't i don't care that you don't tell me that the dog will be involved like that's right. totally fine but if it's if, if you're going to be in pajamas like pajamas are okay then set the expectation if other people show up in a suit i think it's awkward
0: sure
1: <laughs> Sure, and well, in fairness, a lot of that was about internal conferencing. Um, I doubt that was the norm for client or vendor type or external
2: type conversations. But but I have found it to be a lot more casual, hmm. um, and and I think it's I think it's like I think that whole topic from even from the start that you started talking about within the pandemic conversation, the agility thing. Um, I think all of that really speaks to a cultural shift that's occurred within our industry. I'm not sure if it's within all of them, but definitely within our industry, right? Um, Why was IT not able to be agile before and then suddenly a light switch occurred and now they're able to be agile? And I would argue that some percentage of that, if not a large percentage of that, was the rigidity of the organization as a whole. Mm -hmm. And with all of us working remote and all of us essentially unplugging from that cultural rigidity, it's freed us up, both in the kind of things that are easy to measure, like the number, the quantity of the meetings has gone down. And now the meetings that you do have tend to be much more valuable or quicker. Right. Like we're all, mu- I feel we're all much more cognizant of the time we take. We'll put 30 minutes on the calendar. If it's done in seven, we're generally hanging up in seven. Right. Right. People, t- people seem to be more timely, like they're within one or two minutes of a meeting start, right. The kind of standard deviation versus the sometimes seven or 10 and we're less we wait less, right? If someone's that late, okay, they'll have to catch up
1: later. And we're not filling the gaps. If it's okay. a 23 minute meeting, The end. it ends in 23 minutes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we don't go to 30 with
0: conversation for no reason. Okay. Right. So, so is that, like you mentioned, Howard, is that something that leaders outside IT may have been, I don't want to call it roadblocks, but because they were used to do things in one way and the IT organization wanted to pivot, and now they were forced to pivot?
2: No, I, I, don't think, I don't think it's as clear as being able to blame IT versus non-IT, right? I think it's a culture issue, and culture issues, I mean, I hate to say it, but the, the lack of change within a culture, I don't think you should lay blame. Mm-hmm. I think we should all try to change a culture, but first mm-hmm. off, we have to recognize what there is to change. And we've really had far bigger and more endemic issues, like the lack last, the last of women in IT. Like that's a, that's an issue we all should actively work to change. Right. But, but we should also look when those changes occur, even if we, they're, they're not, they're not purposeful changes, we should look at what caused that change to occur. Is that change a good thing and should we embrace it? And to be honest, everything that has to do with the work day with one exception, and I'll talk about it in a second. I think we should fully unequivocally embrace across our organizations. I think, the greatest gift we as leaders were given was this pandemic, <clears throat> because it was a light switch that immediately highlighted how things could be different, right? To any of us that really wanted to be leaders, it really showed <clears throat> it really showed um, positive change that we could then just adopt, because we're forced into it, right? We're forced into our, our organization, whether we're pushing for it or not now, must accept work from home. There is no other option. And it allowed us to really quickly look and go, who works from home well? Who doesn't work from home well? What roles are great work from home roles? And kind of Paul, to your point, like my rule always with employees was, I'm not interested in watching a clock. All I care about is I have some reasonable knowledge of where you're at, because it sets an expectation. Are you in the office or are you out of the office? I don't care what you are doing if you are not in the office. I don't care if you're going to take a two hour lunch and if you set the expectation that every day you take a two hour lunch and you get all of the assigned work that's assigned to you done in the time, in the time that's set for it to be done, I don't care.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Right? I always had people that were, that were not morning people. And while the default shift may have been eight to five, they may have rolled in at 10 and left at seven. I don't care. They may have rolled in at 10 and left at five. But if they got their work done, they were team members. I didn't care and when you work from home my expectation is simple i expect you to to work while you need to work but if you're working from home you can go to the doctor you can go to home depot you can clean your house i don't care what you do in fact you've
1: heard me use the phrase if you hadn't told me i wouldn't have known
2: you use that phrase when i when i have said i need to take a day off right Exactly. And, and I personally feel the same way. Like I, I, I always said, um I, I didn't use that phrase, but I always said I hire adults. Right. Right? It's not this isn't this isn't grade school. I hire adults. I expect you to manage your calendar, to manage your schedule. I expect so um there's a class I teach called Being Your Own Best Advocate, and I'd really like to record it. I'd really like to put it on something like um like or something. Um because one of the biggest questions I get, now, it's important to understand that I'm a self-taught IT person. I do not have a degree. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, you, Paul, you're in the same situation with my next statement, but we're at the kind of top tier of earning within IT, right? Right within technology. Um, that is a hard thing to do regardless of your background, regardless of your education. Would you agree with that? 100%. So... Um, I, I think when you're looking to where you want to be in your career, you should look at where uh, at other people that have got there, and and kind of do like we're in IT. It's it's an engineering field. Even if we don't have a traditional engineer degree, it's an engineering field. And so you should look at what are the statistics of those people, then find people that have done have a background similar to yours and go, how did you get there? What what you know what enabled you to get there? Um, And so I often get asked when I talk, right? Um, How do you get to where you're at? How do I do what you did? Um, And one of the very common ones is I've worked at the same place for seven years. The last time I got a raise was five years ago or four years ago or the day I started. I haven't got a raise since since I started. There's a statistic in I.T. that if you stay more than two years at any one job, you will cost your if like if you eventually do that, you will cost yourself up to 50 percent of your lifetime earnings, right? Um, it's more if you stay much longer than two years, right? Um, and, and the logic for that is simple. It's not because your current employer is out to screw you. It's, it's absolutely not. The reason that occurs is because um, IT traditionally attracts those with, um, that are introverts, that have um, poor conflict management skills. And to be clear, that's not your ability to fight. That's the <laughs> ability, uh, anytime you're communicating with someone in a way that asks a question it's technically conflict and the less likely they are to want to answer that the more conflict that is right. and so asking for a raise asking for a promotion asking for a benefit of some sort is considered conflict um, and so what happens is the only time it people tend to negotiate for any kind of pay at all tends to be in the interview process right the only time those new skills get acknowledged that new experience gets knowledge acknowledged is in the interview process and even if they're not negotiating you tend to go from job to job to job with raises in between and paced out properly. Every two years, you can make 50% more in your lifetime earnings simply by changing jobs. I argue that that's ridiculous. And the reason I argue that is we're leaders, right? It is expensive for me to hire. Would you agree with that? 100%. Um, Significantly more expensive to replace than to promote. Right. And, and uh, the way I looked at it is it's effectively the cost of, Of placement is effectively 50% to 100% of the pay of the position for the year. Right. That's what it's going to cost me. And it tends to be closer to the hundred percent. Now when we get into the VP level and above, it's the cost is two years. Mm -hmm. Right? So it's gonna, if you make $60,000 a year, it's going to cost me between 30 and $60,000 to replace you. That's right. My cost. So Giving you a raise is actually in my best interest, but it's not front of mind for me, nor will it ever be front of mind for me.
1: Nor can I holistically give a raise to a thousand people on an annual basis. That's just not a sustainable uh, activity from, a, and, a, from And if a I, I do, it's,
2: yeah. it's still the same bucket of money. Yeah.
0: Is right. Um, cultural? Because you, you just mentioned something that I have discussed with people in Latin America that they traditionally have not felt comfortable allowing people to work remote, then the people that have to work remote, they don't promote them or give them raises versus the people that are in the office. So have you- There are
2: absolutely cultural differences, but there's a bigger one. And that is, it's how human beings communicate. We've talked a little bit about active versus passive communication, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But if you think back to everyone that's important to you in your life, just kind of think back to it. And and we are of an age where this question is still valid. It's going to change as future generations move into positions that we have. But think back to everyone that's important to you in your life. How many of them have you never seen in person? Right. right? The value of the person tends to increase with the amount of time you spend with that person. Or I should say your opinion about that person tends to change. Sure. It tends to solidify. And if you're thinking about who to give a raise to, are you gonna think about the guy that you talk to once every three weeks, once a month, once every six months, or the person that, that is in the office that you run into next to the water cooler every day? Right. <clears throat> There's a theory called Napoleon's Corporal. Um, it's something they used to teach in HR, but, but hasn't really been taught. Um, Napoleon's Corporal is the story of, Napoleon was coming out to one of the fronts of the war, the Russian front. First time that this, the, this general would ever meet Napoleon in person and Napoleon was his hero and he really wanted to make a good impression and Napoleon was going to award the Napoleonic Award one time during the war, trying to encourage the troops, right? He wanted to award it to the enlisted soldier who was the best in the army. So this guy poured over these notes, made a list, poured over all of the records for all of the soldiers, had it down. Finally, finally, picked the best soldier, the most rewarding soldier, the most disturbing, de- deserving soldier. I'm, I'm speaking quickly because I don't want to spend much time on this. He gets up <clears throat> to deliver that name to Napoleon. Napoleon has no idea who this is. And he says, you know, general, who is the soldier that I'm going to give the award to? And he blanks. It's the first words out of the, out of the mouth of this hero. He blanks. And what name does he come up with? He comes up with the worst soldier because that person's name was across his desk for disciplinary action all the time. <laughs> right right. It, it's kind of the same theory there's no such thing as bad press well this is the ultimate epitome of that and he gives Napoleon the name and the only man to receive the napoleonic war uh, the Napoleonic award was the worst soldier in the Napoleonic army <clears throat> and what it means is if you want the job get in front of the person right if you apply for a job and don't ever go back and say hey what's up with my application it goes to the bottom of the pile because 50 other people have come, have come back 50 other people have created a touch point right And so my 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 point when I talk to people is okay, cool. You haven't received a raise. When was the last time you asked for one? And they're like, well, never. Okay, so your expectation then is that your company is going to come up, come up to you and say, hey, we'd like to give you more money. And it happens, but it's not a legitimate request. You're basically saying, my future is in your hands, and I take no responsibility for it. And so what I tell people is, you, it is incumbent upon you to be your own best advocate no one is responsible for you but you so ask for a raise communicate with your boss and give them an excuse not a reason give them an excuse to give you the raise that has to do with the business at hand no one that came into my office and said hey i've got a kid on the way i need more money ever got more money it's not my kid that doesn't help my bottom line Someone who comes into my office and says, hey, whether you know it or not, for the last six months, I've spent time investing in Linux, and I'm a pretty good Linux admin at this point. They got a raise. Which
1: means that you have to combine your day-to-day work is two things. Be amazing at your current job, but invest in your next job. Do some of that work, not just learning, but also using also implementing also applying if you do and i'm not saying it's 50 50 but certainly send spend a good portion of your five days on the next thing you want to do and then showcase it in some way show people that you now have this capability because it's much easier to get another job when they already think you can do it (laughs) much more difficult when they don't
2: think you can 100% for individual contributors i say pick kind of kind of set up a A sprint, we'll call it. Set up some period of time during which you're going to learn a direction, a task, a thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I would set it up just like a sprint, right? Spend an 80, 20, 80% on your current job, 20% on your future job, even if it's within the same company, even with this, even technically in the same role. And that 20% spend on technical or non-technical, start there, and then go six weeks learning one or the other. And if it's non-technical and you don't know where to start, Toastmasters is a great organization. Right. Right. Learn public speaking, the ability to stand up and deliver information in a a well-spoken, engaging way to a PowerPoint is a skill that will benefit you your entire career and is probably the best accelerator you can get other than maybe data science. Which
0: takes longer than a longer <laughs> You know, that, that's really interesting because I got at least 10 requests to coach people this week alone in that specific topic. How can I do a presentation? How can I connect with people now that I have to do it remotely, how to do it? And people get scared. And you just gave a great tip for all the people that are listening simple stuff that can promote you moving forward to that next level. So I teach it as well. I teach
2: public speaking. Um, I don't, when I teach it, I teach it the same way, regardless of what you're learning it for. So it doesn't matter to me if you're learning it to present technical information to a technical audience, or if, and this is an equally large group that I teach, or if you play games and want to stand up in front of a crowd and teach other people how to play games or run a game in front of a crowd. And what I say, and this is hands down the best advice I can give anyone, is it's a three-step process, maybe four depending on how you break the steps up. So step number one, download a bunch of audiobooks from your library, listen to the first few chapters of each one, and try to determine what made them good or bad. Why did you want to listen or not want to listen? Was it content and you didn't find it interesting? Was the speaker boring? Did they use voices, right? Did they play voices in the characters? Did they have sound effects? What made you want to listen and what made you not want to listen? Second, and and poetry is really critical for this. Listen to poetry. Second, learn how to to read Shakespeare out loud. Shakespeare wrote in what's called iambic pentameter and it is effectively poetry. It has a poetic tone to it. Shakespeare invented 4,000 words, added 4,000 words to the English language. And the reason you're not supposed to end a sentence with a preposition, with a preposition is because Shakespeare said not to. That's not a joke. It's not an <laughs> official English word, an English rule. Shakespeare said not to. And the reason is it breaks iambic pentameter. But the beauty of Shakespeare, and the reason we keep coming back to Shakespeare is because it's absolutely beautiful to listen to. Even if you don't understand it. Even if you don't understand it. Tone and pacing and intonation are the three keys to being a good, engaging speaker. It's infinitely more important than the content. And sometime, if somebody wants, I can prove it by reading stereo instructions with good tone, pacing and intonation. You'll listen <coughs> to the whole thing. But Shakespeare's I Am Pentameter is written with those things built in. And if you learn how to read them, you don't have to read it three or four times. You can literally sit with the book, read it one time, and iambic pentameter will draw you through the tone, pacing and intonation, and it will sound engaging. And the third and final thing, and this is all you need to do to get started, is find a piece of poetry that you like and learn to read it out loud in a way that sounds good. Record it and play it back and continue to do that. Personally, I use The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe for several reasons. One, it's long. Two, it's wicked interesting. And three, it sounds absolutely fantastic. As I pondered weak and weary over many a forgotten lore. So
1: I've done none of those things. (laughs) Exactly none of those things. Uh, What I did have, though, is perform the same function presenting Literally hundreds of thousands of times, uh, and um, have a mentor that was able to um, review, revise, provide guidance almost on an every demonstration basis. Uh, and I listen to a lot of James Spader. I'm big, big fan of James Spader. <laughs> His tone and intonation is something that I aspire to to implement when
2: I speak. James Spader is probably the best modern actor with a body of work that's easy to study, right. no doubt. He's he's hands down one of my favorite, and he's, he's one of my favorites for that exact reason. Right. Um, his roles on his early roles were good, but not, nowhere near as good as Boston Legal and The Blacklist.
1: Right, Blacklist were, is amazing. Yeah.
2: And they were effectively the same character.
1: <laughs> and he was the same character in The Office, which was hilarious.
2: He was. He <laughs> was. But, but um, Boston Legal is... A lighter watch than the blacklist it's got more comedy um i i've just rewatched it recently right that's that's why it's kind of top of mind um and and yes if you if you have the ability to watch him and you want to see somebody who's really perfect at that level of monologue delivery which is effectively what you're doing when you're doing a presentation james spader is near perfect
1: (laughs) so to to bring it back to the original premise So I I talked about the culture as being something interesting, especially when it came to the video culture. What I also found interesting is the net result is they believe this statement to be true. They believe that January 2021 will look much more like now than January 2020, and they gave some specific examples. So specific example number one, uh, that the amount of agility that they're able to implement now will be an expectation. They will no longer be six-month million dollar price tags.
2: And and I would say maybe we'll take a second and kind of break each one of those down rather than okay. run through like a list. Yeah, so, let
1: me let me run through the speech and then we'll break them down. So okay. the first one is agility. They believe weeks is now reasonable in IT. Whether they can say sustain that or not, I don't know. But that's what they believe to be true. The next one that work at home will likely be the starting practice, not the ending practice, and that they absolutely believe, and Howard, you said this many times, the reduction in office space, the freeing of that money will likely be funneled to digital transformation and IT. Awesome, they believe that to be true. And the third point, which I thought was the most amazing point, and it actually is a pretty distinctive difference between Canadians and Americans. It is a truism, that Canadians, as an example, do not move for the job. We grow up, we live in Toronto or Vancouver or Calgary or Montreal. We will not look for another job in another city. And even if offered one, we wouldn't move to that city to do that. Whereas Americans by habit or by culture absolutely have done that many times. In fact, may may have in a single career done that many times. But the feedback I got was that They believe that this working at home was so good that they no longer require to find a data scientist in Boston to go to a Boston office because they run out of resources very, very quickly. They now believe they can look for data scientists anywhere, not just the Americas, but anywhere in the world because they're effective working in this format. Now they've opened up this wide world and now they don't expect them to move at all. Now, that might not be sustainable, or that might just be a wish. But it was very clear that it was a pretty dramatic change for the CIOs
2: in the room. Uh, yeah, and, and I would agree with all of that. Let's let's talk about agility, right? Um, so, as a general note, I would say um, that's only going to be successful if you look at why that change enabled that success today, mm-hmm. right? Because that is in, that is continuing to implement the things that we were forced to to turn on with the light switch. Right. Right. So if you don't pause and go, why couldn't we do this before? And what did this change enable that made that happen? Then it's not going to be sustaining post COVID. So I would say that's job number one. So let's talk about agility, <clears throat> right? I think that did several things for us that are huge. One, it removed all the fluff from our schedule. And now I truly am the master of my own schedule. Right. I figure out what tasks to do when how to stack them properly to enable me to get the job done. And if I need to tap on the shoulder of someone who used to sit in the cube next to me or in the office next to me, I now will probably schedule that task because I can no longer tap on their shoulder. Right. That is tremendous for added agility. Plus my inter interdepart- de- departmental communication is also no longer casual. And so, I no longer have the same level of interruption, but it also means I no longer have the same level of interdepartmental um, uh, um, micromanaging. That was a mm-hmm. term that popped into my head and then vanished. Um, and what used to happen was they wanted kind of these continual updates on what was going on. And you ended up in a lot more status meetings, sometimes more status meetings than you ended up actually doing the work. And it slowed right. everything down. And now it's much more like, I'm gonna send an email with the status and if only if you have a problem with it, can you reply, we're not even gonna schedule a meeting. And so now I can really focus on getting those things done. Right? Our thought process has turned much more to agility because it's not directly in front of me. And therefore, I don't have to spend as much time really thinking about it and making sure that every voice is heard and every voice is represented. Now we're really into the down and dirty of let's get things done. And I think that cultural shift is something that we should absolutely try to acquire and and hold and keep. And if we add to that the things that we talked about, about agility, right, that agility involves breaking things down into the smallest number of steps possible and delivering to the next viable milestone as quickly as possible and then using feedback from that milestone to adjust what the next milestone is right, the version, the MVP to the version one, to the version 1.1 to 1.2, I think we'll be able to retain all of that value from, I think we'll be able to retain all of that value from these agility changes in a really, really positive way. Um, How
1: much do you think this is um, short-term rally around the flag, right, where we're all going to roll up our sleeves and implement change for, for two reasons. A, because we feel it's important to keep the job. And B, because it's, for, it's important in order to enable the customers to still use the services and therefore earn revenue to keep
2: the organization sustainable. So, so I think the, the rah-rah is over. Mm. right? I think the rah-rah definitely occurs without a doubt. Right? Um, And I think smart organizations want to acknowledge that, yes, there was a raw raw. box. We're all in this together. And good, smart organizations with good, smart leaders also look at it and go, let's try to maintain that. Let's add a culture of family back to the organization and really look at how do I encourage employees to maintain that, and then what is my responsibility to them if they do? Right. Right, where it's things like, okay, guys, this is what's like a lot more clarity in the financials, right? This is what's happening. This is what our revenue is like. These are the steps that we've had to take, but we're not taking more steps. Right. Right? This is the trajectory that, we've on, that we're that we on. This is our plan. And, and in as much as you're agile, we will be agile in our feedback so you know what's coming. No one mm. can guarantee that if we've maintained 70% of our revenue through this, we're going to continue to maintain 70% or more. But these are the steps we feel will help us maintain and grow that. And were we to not dip any further, we won't have to do any more riffs. So now we'd like everybody to come together to work on one common goal, which is to achieve this thing that we think will bring us up above that 70% watermark, whatever that happens to be.
1: So that was the first one. The second one, I'm conscious of time here. The second one was uh, working at home being the starting point versus the
2: exception. They believe that to be true. Going forward. Yeah, I believe that to be true. And I believe that to be true for many of the reasons that you listed, right? I think having to move for a job is a silly thing in many cases. There are cases where that is simply untrue. And those are where you have no choice but to be tied to a facility. Mm. Right. If you were a data center manager, let's keep it with IT for a moment. If you're a data center manager, um, you probably need to have some relativistic connection to the physical data center. Sure. Yes. Right. Um, if you're a data center manager who manages five data centers, it no longer matters. Right. Be wherever. But if your job is to rack and stack, right, then that may be true. If your job is to rack and stack just the storage that only gets changed once every three years, you probably can do a fly and, and stay, right? Um, but I do think the default should be for everyone, regardless of job, start with work from home and then only allow an alternative if work from home in it for, works for no reason, right? If, if unequivocally work from home is not an option for this role, then you add a location bias. Otherwise, right. you throw a location bias. The only time a location bias I do think is valid is um, plus or minus like six to the time zone. Right. Right? Just because it, it does become really hard to communicate. You'll, you end up with one point in a day, one, one sliver of the day that you can communicate, and then it's kind of broken. Someone is communicating outside of their operating hours, and I find that to be a cultural problem of the, the largest magnitude, um, but if you're on the East Coast and they're on the West Coast, that should matter not at all and a side benefit of course is diversity
1: right the bigger <laughs> pool of candidates, the more likely I'll be able to find a, a diverse set of candidates
2: and let's be honest cost
1: yeah
2: right if my requirement is you you have to have like part of the interview is I want you to do a screen share and run a speed test so I can see that you get decent internet right, <laughs> right. Um, then then I can also, you can also work from a lower cost of living area, which probably means I can also make you a lesser offer and yet have your, your quality of life be potentially higher than someone I would offer in the place that I was previously making the offer. Right. Right, which is a win for the employee and a win for the employer. Yep. Right? I'm already looking at what other areas can I live that, have, that offer a lower, a better quality of life for the lifestyle that I want to live, while still providing my employer the same net benefit that they have today. And I think everyone should start thinking that way and looking that way and talking that way. Because the better quality of life my employees have, the better their overall morale and attitude will be, the more productive they will be, and the better my products will be, and the better my customers' experience will be. It's a win for absolutely everyone. Um, And, let's be honest, right? It takes six and a half hours to get someone from New York to LA on an airplane. Yep. And thus, I can have anybody in a next day meeting with reasonable notice for what's ultimately pennies, right? right. Airfare is not that costly. And if I'm able to take a $100,000 employee and save 20%, because I'm offering them in a lower cost of, cost of living area, I have twenty thousand dollars a year to spend on travel without changing my budget one penny. Am I really gonna spend twenty thousand dollars in travel to have that employee come up for a quarter of the meeting? Right. Especially not when we've shown Zoom works.
1: All right, Carlos. That was fifty minutes of quality content.
0: (laughs) You're on mute, Carlos. There we go. That was a very interesting (laughs) conversation. Um, we were going one way and then we switch another <laughs> but it's very interesting because as leaders sometimes we're looking to do one thing and we need to switch and like you mentioned to see what will be the benefit for the company or what will be the benefit for the employee I start thinking now companies may start to even though they may be small to think into a multinational type level Because you mentioned, now they can hire people in different countries because they can work from home. Mm That- You can take
2: advantage of things that you previously couldn't take advantage of, right? There are several states that have state-run programs where um, they offset the labor cost by paying the labor cost directly for for certain demographic groups or certain um, areas of the country, right? So um, as an example, there's a whole rural work program where if you relocate rather than outsourcing to a foreign country, if you outsource or locate your customer service in a rural area, right? They'll they'll give you tax credits, or they may in fact pay. Um, military, the, the, the U.S. military federal program has um, it's 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 effectively spousal work programs, where the military will give you office space will give you pay the employees themselves or some percentage thereof to have them run anything that they can do from an office anything that they can be trained to do you're responsible to train them you're and you are responsible to um to supply the equipment right but all of a sudden you could set up on a military base you could set up a, a 40 person call center be that help desk tier one customer service billing support doesn't matter and the government will offset it. And, and no longer having this connection to your physical property really changes that and enables those things that, that enable you to be flexible and take advantage of programs that you otherwise could not have done. And I think it's an absolutely brilliant way to start really looking at how, how do you spend money, how do you invest your revenue to better service your, your needs and your end customers.
0: I think that that is the key you just shared uh, some great nuggets. That is the idea of how we, as leaders, look to offset some of the costs, but actually bring value both ways. My friends, it's been awesome to have you with us today. As always, make sure that you subscribe to each one of our channels. Could be our podcast, could be our videos, and share this with other IT leaders and with your team so they can grow and you continue to be the leader that we know that you can be. My friends, we'll see you on our next episode.